2: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
3: Yeah, we're dedicated to seeing change in our country through using jazz music to teach us who we are as a nation. Music nurtures the realm of the invisible. All of your internal life is nurtured by music, when it's music of quality. beethoven Symphony, Mahler Symphony, Shasta Duke Ellington, and listening to that... It's nurturing. It's like you're putting the most nutritious nutrients on a plant. And that's what we need in our nation, you know.
2: That's Wynton Marsalis, a man whose belief in the power of music is expressed not only through his virtuoso trumpet performances, both jazz and classical, but also in his work as director of jazz at Lincoln Center. His most recent work is an album that melds an exhilarating jazz score with biting social criticism. It's called The Ever Funky Lowdown. This is such a treat to be talking to you today. I can't tell you. I admire you so. And we, we, you know, we had different beginnings, but similar in some ways. Your dad was a musician, and you grew up in places where jazz was being played, and your boyhood friends were musicians. My boyhood friends were burlesque comics because my father was in burlesque at the time.
3: So you were always a kid around all the older people. That's right. That's right.
2: And I, and I thought that the world was, was being on the stage and entertaining people. I, I, I didn't know there were other kinds of people in the world.
3: It's a colorful upbringing, though.
2: <laughs> How did you get from jazz to, to what's usually called classical music. How, how did you get to Juilliard and study there?
3: Well, a the guy gave me a recording in New Orleans. I was a freshman in high school. I might have been in eighth grade. I was going to high school in eighth grade, and a, a, a guy who was from a college, Loyola, got on the streetcar, and he was a trumpet player, and he went in the back of the streetcar and put his trumpet case next to mine, and he gave me a recording of Maurice André, a great French virtuoso of the trumpet, and he said, are you a trumpet player? I said, yeah. He said, check this record out. And when I saw it was classical music, I was disappointed. But I started reading the liner notes, and it said that he his parents had been coal miners. And I thought, man, this guy's parents were coal miners, and he played classical trumpet? So I went home, and I put that recording on, and I, I started to wonder, I wonder if I could learn how to play like him. And I started to learn the pieces off of the recording. Even though I could have gotten the music, but we just learned everything off records at that time. He, of course... Was such an unbelievably great trumpet player, and I ended up actually meeting him when I did my first record. He was—he was, he was happening to just randomly be in the same studio I was in in London, and I had a chance to meet him and and talk with him. My first classical recording was actually pieces I had heard him play, and uh, get a lesson with him and be around him. He was such a natural and kind of easy and deeply soulful person. Um, it, it was a. Uh, It is like a spiritual thing, really, for me.
2: I heard you say once that there were three things that made jazz jazz. Three three things that you had to have for it to be jazz. Does that come off the tip of your tongue now?
3: Yeah. Well, one is, uh, you know, uh, improvisation. That's something that everybody accepts. I mean, you make up your own thing and you do your thing. It's your identity. It's the I part of the music. And the jazz musicians always teach you, maybe people will tease you about something, the way your head is shaped or if you stutter or if you have anything that that people make fun of. In jazz, they tell you celebrate that. See if you can do that on your own. Whatever you have that's personal to you, that's yours. So you make something out of that. And a lot of the nicknames we would have would be if a person had any type of deformity or something they look like an animal that was your name man if you look like a frog get people calling you frog and it wasn't considered an insult because it was just a, a thing we all knew it was in the open so the improvisation part is like that and then uh the the other part is swing and that's more difficult because it it is it's a responsibility it makes you forces you to play in balance with other people and make choices that are balanced like and jazz we can solo as long as we want But if you swing and you look around, why are you gonna take all the solo time? Let other people solo. So swing is a very important concept about balancing odd meter times, the bottom and the top, how you solo balance, how things are, you know, to make decisions that are collective decisions that nurture the common ground. And then the blues is that overwhelming belief in humanity and the thought that no matter how messed up something is, there's something in our world and in our trajectory and in our identity that is going to survive and is going to adapt and change and make the adjustments necessary for us to live in style eventually.
2: You know, I always thought if you ain't got that swing, it meant a a style. But it's more than that. It's being being aware of the other people, apparently.
3: That's what makes it swing. I see. Like if you take... Go ahead. Even like right now, because of our technology, I'm stepping over you sometimes, but... The reason I'm, the reason I'm stepping over you is because I really want to be interviewing you. So (laughs) I'm really serious. I'm not joking. So I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at you. We on the, on the, uh, on the phone and I grew up loving you. So, you know, I'm talking to you and, and you're asking me questions and I'm answering them, but I'm all the time thinking about, well, what would I ask you? So it's making, making our swing kind of be off, but it's not because of you. I'm trying to, I'm, I'm just trying to, so you'll notice sometimes I'm, I'm jumping in. I'm, I'm stepping on you and it's, uh, it, it, it's the, the swing is just to kind of find to find the rhythm that we're in.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what my goal is when when in all these conversations I have, and thank thank goodness I have them with people who can do it to be together and have a conversation and not an interview where I just ask you questions and you give me answers. Wait,
3: well, see, but that's what I mean. I'm trying to. I'm saying, because I I you, got, you got some information on me. I said, man, I should have got prepared. I should have some good information on you. So, so you're ready for me. I'm not ready. So, you know.
2: <laughs> you're always ready. I'm amazed. Well, what's the third factor in jazz? I forget what, what you just
3: the said. The blues. It's, it's, it's adaptability.
2: For a long time, I misunderstood that. I always thought of, if you sing the blues, you're complaining. You know, my, my, my lover don't love me no more. That kind yeah, of thing.
3: You're complaining. But you complain in the way a vaccine introduces a disease to you.
2: Oh, perfect.
3: Yeah, it's it's
2: it's adapting. It's dealing with the thing.
3: Yeah. You, you know, like you lay in your room and you moan, you lose somebody you love, and you just what you're not moaning to feel worse. You're letting it out. You're identifying it, you're quantifying it, you're putting it in a context you can understand and you can deal with. And then when you get finished with all that moaning and wailing, well, that's it for that. You move on. You you you've been able to. to to absorb that pain and deal with it by confronting it.
2: So this is an actual question that I thought of in advance.
3: That's what I'm saying. You ready for me?
2: (laughs) This is what I'm going to say is not necessarily swing, but it comes out of what you're saying. In your new album, The Ever Funky Lowdown. First of all, before I get into my question... How did funky become funky? What, what's funky?
3: In New Orleans, that's how we say it. Yeah, in New Orleans, I played in funk bands in the 70s. We never said funk. We said funk. I So see. we always say, boy, I would say, how, da, how, does, how is the band? Like We, we call everybody bruh, too. So if, if I'm talking to you, I say, man, how the band sound, bruh? And we also sing when we talk like this. How the band sound, bruh? You say, boy, they funky? Yeah, bruh. They funky. Well, how funky are they? Funky? Funky, <laughs> so that's what the word is. You know, I've I missed that sing-song way we would talk. You know, man, we'd be singing when we talk. Oh, that's great. We used to have big battles of the bands at this place called Gaylord's, the top of a department store. Three bands would set up and play a dance all night, and the people would have to determine who won. And there's some bands you didn't want to see them because they was funky, funky, funky.
2: That's like another another language, but it has to do with this thing you talk about a lot of knowing what the other person is going through having some awareness of that you can't even if you want to help somebody you can't help them if you don't know what they're really going through i never heard that distinction that you went through not it's not a distinction it's a it's a a trial you were so smart in school i heard i heard you say once that you got every part of the year you got a a a a and in the last part of the year you got a B, not because you didn't deserve an A.
3: Yeah, like a, a black student couldn't be the one, you know? Just wasn't, that wasn't what was going to happen. That was just a reality. Like, it didn't hit me like, if you talk about it today, all of those things, man, we were fighting, a lot being called names. It was a part of that era. But if you talk about it today, it seems like uh, it's such a tragedy or it's this or it's that. But if you from that type of environment, that's where you, you adapt to the environment you're in. And a lot of times, it's only in retrospect that you put it in a larger context, and that's true of, 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 I think, of all of our experiences. So even somebody grows up in a high crime area; they're living in that in that area. They, they're not; they're trying to survive that what they live in. Now, when they go later and start telling people stories of it, it seems exciting. But if you were there, then it wasn't like that. It just they were just surviving the situation they were in.
2: So now to my question that I had. That comes out of what we've been talking about. In the ever-funky lowdown, you you really apply all of this stuff to the, the way we organize ourselves as a nation, as a culture, and not only us, but every culture that's ever been around. I mean, you go back to the Romans and the Greeks, and it's been the same thing. Democracy, when we have experienced it, has been a hustle. It would be fun if we could play a bit of the funky Lowdown album. What snatch of it do you think we should go for?
3: It may sound like the drums of war, but it's actually the stealing of money.
2: See a way, maybe through what you know about jazz and how you know people can come together through listening and building on each other's ideas and each other's intuitions. Do you see a way we can make yeah. democracy actually work or are you done with democracy?
3: No, I definitely see a way. I'm not, I'm not done with it at all. I've traveled to too many places in the world. I'm not done with it by any stretch of the imagination. I believe it can work. I believe it takes a lot of work it takes engagement we need to teach our kids first this needs to be 101 like what is the constitution what does it do how how is our representative form reflected in our local government take people to this to this to the local the the city state legislatures let them understand what a police force is uh, we need just more information and I also believe that we for some reason people have run a game on everybody that you should pay your taxes and nothing should be free. <laughs> Somebody said, well, free healthcare. First of all, healthcare is not free. You're already paying your taxes. So those taxes should cover that healthcare and education. I feel like, you know, when you have a civic society and you take the four pillars of it and you think about how we do, you, you, have, you have business, you have religion, you have, religion, uh, you have uh, politics, and you have civics. So business, okay, that is business. So you're making money off of that. You're trading, and that's natural for people to trade and try to see. Politics, our politics now are corrupted by money. It's not that the democratic system is It's that the the way it's being practiced now is about redistributing money to rich friends of people who are in positions of power. Or, or we need we need to just clean a lot of this stuff up. It's just just corrupt. Put people in jail. It's corruption. So. Our politics cannot also just be about money. It has to have some type of political, some type of agenda that is about the people. And then religion—I don't even know what to say about that. I mean, you have you have some religious groups acting like political entities, and that's once again, it it it's about it's about money. Now we get to civics, which is about investment. Your civics, that's your education. Hey, you have, you're investing in the future of your country, whether you're for it or against it. We have a whole nation of people. What are we working on? We're working to make sure people don't get minimum wage. We're making to make sure you continue to pay for insurance three and four times We're working to make sure that uh some 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 immigrants or somebody somewhere who you're not going to encounter make sure that they are punished for coming into our country. It is ridiculous. <laughs> like some of this stuff is ridiculous, and you know the Democrats are not any better than the Republicans. <laughs> I don't give the impression that I feel like, hey, when you go over to the left, because the corruption is the same. It's the same people stealing the same money, and we need to just demand more. I need to demand more, because when you look at what we could do in our country, man, you know, you you, you see so much stuff, you know, and it's like, what are our national goals and what are our projects and our aspirations? We have to we have to clean up our whole the whole infrastructure of our country, we need to change it to make sure that we're in alignment with the environment. That's just a fact. I don't, then I have to get involved with the green. I have to get involved with some catchword. Okay. Instead of me discussing this subject now, all of a sudden I'm discussing a term. And that's a, you know, we need to be, instead of being a sophisticated kleptocracy and a, you know, we need to get inside of these cycles. And, and there should never be a case where anyone in the United States is
2: hungry. Oh, uh, boy, yeah. that you're telling me. But what I, don't, what I don't see right away is the chance to listen to one another when we, as you were talking about, that we have terms that we argue about without even defining the terms. We have different definitions for the very words we use with one another. We don't accept, mm-hmm. we don't accept reality the same way. What what's reality to me is not reality right. to somebody else. How do we get past that?
3: Well, you know, I I think that um, there's always been a battle for acuity. And that's and that's in the world. And it's it's the kind of rigorous scientific thinking and understanding it because you feel something is something doesn't make it something. Like reason. And, and yet we have to reintroduce reason. And it's, the reason is that something is not something because everybody says it's that. It's when the underlying math and mechanics also tells you it's that. And it's like one of the the tenets of reality is that people agree on it. But the more difficult the thing is the less easy it is to find consensus. And consensus does not make something true. <laughs> like we can all agree on something. It can be absolutely, what are the underlying mechanics? And I go back again to the thought of uh, knock, ask, seek. Seek, ask, ask, seek, knock. Wait, wait I
2: don't follow that. See that again.
3: <laughs> in the Bible, you know, they say, ask and it shall be given. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened. So that's, that's in a way, that's a symbolic representation of a, a, a process of reasoning and of rigor. At this point, we've confused fact with feeling. I feel like I really don't like these people. They're committing crimes. Wait, these people are not committing crimes? When was the last time the majority of our 300 million people needed police? A lot of people are not seeing any of these things, you know? But the people in the neighborhoods that need the, the police are now have a slogan, defund the police. It's like we get caught up. And if we want to change the way policing is done, we have to be reasonable about it. You know, we have to fight qualified immunity in the grand jury trial. We have to just be pointed. We have to address their union and its power because we have to retrain officers and redefine what success at policing means and also have the police do less. Why is a police coming out dealing with mentally ill patients or or why is a policeman coming out to get a a dog out of a a, a, a alligator out of your backyard? They're not trained to do that. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It's just... They're doing too much stuff that they're not trained to do, and, and uh, they need to be from the neighborhood they're from. Like, let's let's go back to the concept of communities. You know, there's tremendous intellectual energy and power in this country, but it's just not being focused on solving our problems. It's being focused on stealing money and exploiting the big, huge majority of poor white people that exist in the country. The black people are just a level that they push to get to that real group, that the, the largest group who you want to exploit the most so that you can keep kind of this system going. And if that group was ever, uh, the elites had ever stopped exploiting that group, the country would get much better.
2: After a short break, Wynton Marsalis will be back to talk about the hugely ambitious education program he runs at Jazz at Lincoln Center and how, thanks to his father, he came belatedly to appreciate the genius of Louis Armstrong. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid... You can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on a virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free. But you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Aldus Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid.
3: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest,
2: but let me play devil's
3: advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh,
2: This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Wynton Marsalis. I'm thinking of all the musicians I know, and I know some great musicians. They're smart. Is there something about music that helps you get smarter than you might be without the music? What is, it's definitely what's going music. on there?
3: <laughs> music, yeah, music is just the spatial intelligence, the mathematics of music. The kind of human empathy, the feeling you you connect with the world of music. Music speaks across time. Just if you could just sit and listen to a piece of music, it's forty minutes. Yeah, Beethoven Symphony, Mahler Symphony, Shostakovich, Duke Ellington, Black, Brown, and Beige. Yeah, musicians across time playing in an ensemble with other musicians and 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 and, and practicing your instrument and contemplating. And also, mu- music nurtures the, the 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 realm of the invisible. All of your internal life is nurtured by music, when it's music of quality. But music can also exploit that realm. But when you're dealing with quality music, yeah, you're John Coltrane. It's train is putting a lot on your mind, your heart, your spirit. And listening to that is nurturing. It's like you're putting water on, on the most nutritious nutrients on a plant. And uh, it's hard at first to get into the music, but it's, and that's what we need in our nation. You know,
2: Tell me about what you do. I, I get the impression that you you really have a mission to help young people develop the the education programs you have at uh, Jazz at Lincoln Center. You you it's like you're working on the next generation. And I and I've seen shots, I've seen videos of you working with them, giving them a, a syncopated beat to do and, and to watch to watch them light up when they do it and start dancing to the, to the beat. It's, just, it's a very beautiful thing to see you working with those kids. Tell, how long have you been doing that?
3: Well, yeah, with Jazz Lincoln Center, we have 12 education programs, and uh, they cover people of all ages and all, of all kinds. We also have a, uh, a jazz academy that's online, so jazz.org. If you want to go to jazz academy, you don't have to be a musician. We have a lot of classes just for listeners. I've been, I mean, I've been doing it really my whole life. I taught students even when I was in high school on a, a nationally, the first time I ever taught a class was in East St. Louis in 1980. Uh, when I was 18, I was playing with Art Blakey, and one of the greatest band directors in the country called me and said, man, you're going to come in town and not teach my trumpet players. I said, man, I can't teach, I'm, i am I'm trying to learn myself. He said, man, they need to see a person your age, come down here. And I went to Lincoln High School and I taught a class. And that started me on the road of teaching, I've been in thousands of schools at this point. And now with Jazzy Lincoln Center and our birth in 1987, we were able to have an education department that's led by a fantastic uh, educator and teacher named Todd Stoll, who I met in Ohio when we were in our twenties. And he's come and he's led a a tremendous effort that we have with educating kids. uh, I I went down in Ohio and I I got my man about it. He's an old ball player too. But Todd, uh, you know, it's, it's both of our, I mean, we're, we're dedicated. My father was dedicated to it. He's dedicated to it. He's a third-generation uh, education administer, administrator. His, his family has been uh, school administrators since his grandfather. So we are, uh, yeah, we're dedicated to seeing change in our country through using jazz music to teach us who we are as a nation. And uh, we're, we're, we're anti sectarian we we try to embody the best of our music and we try to bring our country together and we teach all of the heroes. And we always make the point that Benny Goodman is no less a hero than any of the other musicians. And that the the heroic status of what you did is not only relegated to what you played. And yes, you should know Duke Ellington's music. Yes, he is our greatest genius of the 20th century, our most prolific composer, and we should all know his music, not just black kids. And then white kids, just because they have some money or means doesn't mean that they know any more about American culture than anybody because they've been purposely kept ignorant of the culture to protect the lies in our mythology, and that hurts them.
2: When you started to describe the first time you gave a class and you said, well, how am I going to teach these kids? I'm still learning. I, in 1981, I went to China, and somebody said to me, would you teach a class, in an uh, acting class, to these acting students they were they were young energetic people but I couldn't speak Chinese and they couldn't speak English so I decided to do improvisations with them in gibberish where I didn't know what we were saying and they didn't know what we were saying but you had to yeah. communicate it you had to communicate emotions and thoughts through the through your your behavior and and the way and the tonality of your voice as you spoke gibberish and it brought us together except they had been so demoralized by their government that they were afraid to let the real them out. It was, it was a sad experience for me to watch. And in a way you've touched on that a couple of times today.
3: Yeah. But I I like what you just said because you just gave me a a key to kind of teaching the music, not in a, not in keys or not in just just play emotions, like just play. You know, I always, I always struggle with, 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 with that. Sometimes I teach my my younger students, just don't worry about keys and notes and all, just play the feeling of happiness or sadness. Or this is a sunrise, or this is a, but with the communication aspect that you, that you were thinking, well, you took it out of language and brought it down to kind of a human essential, we should actually teach like that. So, you see, just this conversation gave me another way to, to, to actually teach. Great. I
2: got to send you a video. I've taught chamber music groups two or three times, and one of the games I play with them is everybody take your instrument. Usually, they, you know, they're, they're, they got string instruments. So I said, pick up your instrument, stand in a circle, make an emotion with your instrument. Don't play a tune that's emotional. Don't play Afternoon of a Fawn.'" Make a sound. Just make a sound that's got an emotion. Toss it to the person next to you. Let that person pick up that emotion and let it transform into another emotion and toss that one to the next person. And it really was its similar to what we do in acting, but we did it here with instruments, and it was really fun to do. I'll send that to you and, and see what you think.
3: Yeah, I would, I would love that. I'm, I'm really interested in that because I've been just struggling how to get students to play with a lot more expression. Like, we're not, we're not teaching them that right. Yeah, I look forward to seeing it.
2: You know, I'm really interested in your early reaction to Louis Armstrong. I read that it, it took you a while to appreciate his genius. Is that right?
3: When, when I was growing up, I had no respect for Louis Armstrong. I see him in movies singing to horses. and We're in civil rights, Malcolm X, Black Power. we need Louis Armstrong with a handkerchief. I never listened to the man's music before a certain period. I only listened to current music. So there's no reason for me to listen to Louis Armstrong singing, Hello Dolly. We don't want to hear that. We're listening to James Brown. We're listening to Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder. And uh, your mythology tells you what is virtuous. What in your culture is virtuosic? What are you you striving? Who in the world was striving to be like Louis Armstrong? We had no idea of the man's uh, history, We didn't know his solos, what he had played. He was considered to be passé. We didn't know all the trials and tribulations he went through. Now, my father knew those things and would be telling me, you need to check pops out. So I was the only one of any of my friends who would ever really, we knew his name, but of any of my friends who would have had a chance to know who Louis Armstrong was, I was in the best position. It was not till I left New Orleans and went to New York and was 18 that my father still, he sent me a tape and said, man, learn one of these solos. And man, I could not play that solo. <laughs> I said, all this fast stuff I can play, I can't play like Louis Armstrong. And that took me on a kind of journey to try to discover: well, why don't I know who Louis Armstrong is? Or why don't I understand who this man is in the culture? Why don't I? And it's a lot, it's a lot of it is because of mythology. The, mytho- the mythology, the myth was, you'll need to know who he is. He's not important. He's Uncle Tom. He's doing this. Then come to find out he's like the key to understanding American. Music of all kinds in the 20th century. In what so, way? Well, Frank Sinatra said it best. He said, "He, he said he's the, he is the foundation of everything everybody is singing." He taught us how to improvise on chord changes. He taught us how to make our improvisations coherent. He's the greatest instrumentalist. He played the instrument unbelievably. His trumpet playing is. You, you can't believe how great his playing actually is from a from a technical standpoint. And even greater than technique, the nuances in his playing, because it's like a, like a voice. And then he was also the greatest, most expressive singer. So you take a person in two completely different categories, there's never been anything like that since him, who was in, influential and innovative as an instrumentalist, and also influential and innovative on the greatest popular singers. He changed the trajectory of the American popular song. Hoagy Carmichael said, man, if, when he heard Louis Armstrong's version of Stardust, that's what I wish I would have written. And then you look at Louis Armstrong's 70th birthday party. Who's throwing it when pops is 70 at the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles? Hoagy Carmichael, who had heard Louis Armstrong when he was a kid. Hoagy, when Hoagy was a kid, had heard Louis Armstrong uh, in the early 1920s. So, you know, all of these things are, are, are connected. And as you start to separate yourself from your tradition because of generation, which is how we're taught now, uh, the youth culture, the this and the that, and every generation suffers from it. And your parents are the biggest drag in the world and your, your parents are the problem and you need to, your parents are holding you down. It's some of the most ridiculous, uh, uh, mythology. You are, you start to cut yourself off from, from your understanding of who you are and your ability to actually be proactive in achieving, uh, uh, and achieving all those goals that it takes more than a generation to achieve, then that's going to be most of the heftiest and loftiest ones.
2: I think that's a perfect image of what we've been talking about the the whole time, which is how you had been cut off from the source that you needed to be connected to with Louis Armstrong. And when you finally listened to him, you realized what you had been missing.
3: I'm still realizing it. Man, he can play. He dealt with a lot. And he there's a lot of solutions in his playing.
2: Unfortunately, they're telling me it's time for us to wrap up. So we always end our show with seven quick questions. They're, they're not embarrassing questions. They're quick questions, so they invite quick answers. Oh, Here's the first one. What do you wish you really understood?
3: Women. <laughs> <laughs> What's the next one?
2: How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong?
3: That's not right, bro.
2: That's gentle. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
3: Oh, man, that's a a difficult one. Uh, A a girl looked at my trumpet and said, what is that thing in your hand?
2: (laughs) (laughs) That that gets back to the first question again, I guess. How do you stop a compulsive talker?
3: What you do is you give them some depth. You just raise your hand up and go to shake their hand and say, man, I hear you. I got to get back with you.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, remember when we used to have conversations at a dinner table, when we had dinner tables together, and you're sitting next to someone you don't know? How do you start up a real conversation with that person?
3: Always with something that you observe about them. It could be something they have on, something that... uh that they're wearing more than the typical question is where are you from or something like that. But I like to be something that I have observed about them.
2: Mm, That's so much like the jazz model, isn't it? Yeah. Take it from them. What gives you confidence?
3: The fact that everybody is, that we're all insecure. So I'm confident in that fact. (laughs)
2: Last question. What book changed your life?
3: Of Frederick Douglass, narrative, Life of a Slave, written by himself. I always like that. I was a kid when I read that. I read a kid's version of it, and it, it, it changed my understanding of stuff.
2: That's great. Winton, I had such a great time with you. Thank you.
3: Man, for, for me, you know, it's, it's such an honor. I loved you for a long time, so, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an honor to, to speak with you, and you've been such a force out here for good and creativity and soul. You know, just, just your name is an act of soul. When people say your name, they start smiling. So congratulations.
2: The embarrassing thing about that is if we edit this show and if we leave that in, it looks like I meant to.
3: Don't leave it in. You got to leave it in. The truth has to always be left in.
2: This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid, up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Winton's album, The Ever Funky Lowdown, is the latest in dozens of albums, both jazz and classical, that is released over the last four decades. You can view the full discography and the latest updates on his schedule, as well as dip into his blog at wintonmarsalis.org. One date you won't want to miss is the premiere on December 19th of Big Band Holidays. It's a virtual concert featuring the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra. And details are at jazz.org. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Margaret Atwood, the author of The Handmaid's Tale, its sequel, The Testaments, and scores of other works of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry.
0: Everybody has their own method of writing, and some people have to have the first page perfect before they can go on to the second, whereas I'm, I'm more of a downhill skier, you know, just just get to the end. And then you can go back and see where you screwed up along the way.
2: Margaret Atwood, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.